0: Hi and welcome to Inner Moonlight. I'm your host, Logan Kier. We are the monthly poetry reading for The Wild Detectives in Dallas. We are in podcast form and I am excited to bring you reading and conversation with one incredible writer every episode. This month, I am thrilled to be joined by Dallas poet Joe Malazzo. Joe Malazzo is the author of the novel Crepuscule with Nellie two volumes of poetry, The Habiliments, and Of All Places, In This Place, Of All Places, and several chapbooks, including the forthcoming Homeopathy for the Singularity. His writings have appeared in Black Clock, Black Warrior Review, Bomb, Prelude, Tammy, Texas Review, and elsewhere. He's an associate editor for Southwest Review and the founder and editor-in-chief of Surveyor Books. Joe lives and works right here in Dallas, and his virtual location is wwwjoe molazocom Welcome, Joe.
1: Thank you. Great to be here, wherever here is. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> excited to have you. Um, so I start every
0: show with asking my guests to tell me something good. So what's good today, Joe?
1: What is good today? It's a pretty mundane thing, but uh, we have long needed to have some work done on our home, And uh, we are finally seeing kind of the the log jam on that break. Now that the weather has turned a little bit more uh, predictable. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I have to say, I am strangely excited at the thought that we are going to have new insulation blown in our attic.
0: I (laughs) am thrilled for you.
1: Uh, Uh, And it was funny when I was talking to the contractor, he was saying, oh, this isn't like the fiberglass you, you knew as a kid. And I thought about the times that I played with fiberglass un- unknowingly as a child and the misery that followed.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay. That's not an experience I've had.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's like an old fiberglass batting is was like this cotton candy pink. Oh, okay. So it's sort of, you know, uh, would be very attractive to a child because it's yeah. it, it looks soft and it's pink. Okay. No, you don't want to pick it up.
0: Yeah. Okay. But you're getting some like new fancy stuff.
1: Yes. Apparently it's not nearly as uh, itchy.
0: Well, I'm very happy for you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. That's exciting. Uh, So I always have to play my own game. Yes, Um, please. Yeah. My good thing is I have, I've reached being fully vaccinated. So that's it.
1: Congratulations.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's like a little like beacon of hope. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk to you about your work today. I know you have like a million things going on. And of all of the things that the pandemic has brought me, this podcast has been a real joy because it does give me the opportunity to ask so many nerdy nerdy questions. (laughs) (laughs) So you you have some stuff that's forthcoming. Um, You have an ongoing project that you're working on this year. So why don't you tell me about what you're up to in 2021?
1: Sure. For a while now, I've kind of started every new year with an artistic resolution. And it's usually a year-long project of some sort. So in 2017, every day, I took a picture while looking up, (laughs) right? So it was looking up. In 2017. Okay. 2018, what did I do? I think it was maybe sound related. Anyway, I took a break from that last year. I did mm-hmm. not have a, a project like that. And so for 2021, I decided that I was going to not just write every day, but try to complete a poem every day. And some of that was influenced by over the holiday break from 2020 to 2021. I finally sat down and read a book that I'd been meaning to read for some time, which is the collected poems of Joseph Saravolo. Joseph Saravolo was a, a relatively obscure uh, New York School poet, but I, I, I find much to admire in his work. He was a civil engineer by trade. He was a working class poet, um, mm-hmm. but part of his practice, and one of the reasons that his collected works is so interesting, is because I would wager that about sixty percent, maybe more of his collected poems were not published in his lifetime. They were part of a daily practice or a fairly daily practice. And so the last, I don't know, third of the book is dated poems from hmm. the last decade of his life, more or less. Okay. And I just thought about that. I just thought about how, you know, we talk a lot about discipline and and the need to write and productivity and, and all those sorts of things. And I just thought, well, I think I'm going to try to Joseph Ceravolo myself a little bit. Okay. (laughs) I'm really interested to see kind of where the writing ends up after the end of this year. Mm -hmm. Because I'm just wondering kind of like what breaks, what heals, and what sort of shape does it take in sort of reconstituting itself? Okay. You know what I mean? Like I know... I'm going to reach a point in this project. It's probably already one of them's probably already come and gone and I haven't noticed it <laughs> where something has changed. Like I've reached the limit of what I would normally be able to do or would do due to my proclivities.
0: Yeah. I'm interested in this idea of the completed poem. Cause a lot of the advice for tackling something like say a thirty thirty is like, don't, don't revise. Don't try to yeah. finish it just write, right. Right, mm-hmm. um, and then you know once your challenge is over, you can kind of come back. But you have decided that that's not your approach. So it's why?
1: Well, I think I'm partly challenging myself to think about how a poem is finished or complete differently. Right? Like I kind of know what my my average trajectory through a poem is. Uh-huh. I kind of know my default approach to ending something. Part of this project is really about like kind of leaning into those habits so hard that, like I said, they kind of break and I'm forced to be super aware of them and make different choices. And I will say that I started writing in sort of more canonical forms in the sense that I think the first five or six poems that I wrote in January were still sonnets because I Ah, knew once I reached the 14th line, I was done.
0: Yes. Okay. That framework can be applied elsewhere right so it, yeah. uh, the the rhetorical moves are complete of the sonnet yeah.
1: right yeah. Um, <laughs> yes okay right yeah so then there's other considerations like you say like it's not just about the 14 lines it's about the the problem solution rhetorical strategy as you call it of, of a lot of sonnets but yeah. but then then you can start to play with that and say okay what if i what if i invert that what if the solution becomes before the problem or there's a solution to a problem that was never expressed that leads to another problem like things like that absolutely okay
0: Okay. that makes sense okay and that sort of redefines what you mean by done because for me i i I will toil over particular poems for i mean days months years like i the, the the feeling of done is it can shift and be different for everybody.
1: So. Absolutely. Well, what's the famous expression, you know, the poem is never finished, only abandoned in despair, right? <laughs> um, and I like to labor for a long time over certain poems. Yeah. And I suspect that I will come back to this massive work at some point and think about a salvage project from it.
0: Well, I would love to hear one of them. Will you read me
1: one? Sure. So um, this is called The Milk Thief. And this was written in January. So The Milk Thief. The gleam I can't fence in I attract with sidle and pale, pacifying that spotted dog testing the rod that straps his leash. Six days of undoing for the sake of one day to scratch fattening, never necessities ripe for the gathering. From the fiery floor of a dingy pot Panic, my only mate, my mouth always drenched, zealous for a spurt to overtake, the nettles trespassing on my hay. How I pine for some fertile salving to plaster, some favor to transpire in the happening, parlor lights sputtering in the sun, searchless beneath the moon. The belfry isn't breached, the barn not burning, Smoke won't gulp until the tapers have been snuffed. Bottle or teat, docile or stricken. Tutor my foolhardy throat, temper my brass, freeze my bombardments in their tracks.
0: This is such a strange poem.
1: What do you find most strange about it?
0: You know, now that you told me that you kind of started from a sonnet place. Mm-hmm. I can see the, the alliteration, the use of alliteration, and the use of the line kind of coming from that place.
1: Yeah. That's what most interests me about the sonnet is the rhetoric of it. I mean, the 14-line piece is is interesting because it is it's constraining in a way that rhetoric doesn't want to be constrained sometimes. It wants to be more expansive. Mm-hmm. That's not always the case. I mean, there's plenty of rhetoric that that operates on compression and condensation in the same way that that we want poetry often to. But I think about like different oral traditions, poetry and rhetoric, and how rhetoric wants to kind of pick up this momentum. You know, the sonnet kind of thwarts that in some ways, or it it just makes the rhythm operate differently. Yeah. So yeah, I, I feel like this may be a case of I don't honestly don't remember. It may have started as something shorter that then kind of like, nope, I'm going to let it spill over. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm also doing this project in Google Docs in part Mm -hmm. so I can go back and look at previous versions very easily and see what kind of changes are being made in the moment of composition. Yeah. And to learn from that.
0: That's fascinating. You're right because Google Docs will just instantly show you. It's like mm-hmm. it's like pulling
1: layers of wallpaper down.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Ooh, what's this back here? Wow, I don't. Remember, I don't remember that. You know.
0: Yeah. Alliteration for me creates creates rhythm here that reminded me of the sonnet that's what i meant um when i pointed that out yeah because it doesn't it doesn't rhyme I, sonnets are so interesting because they come with so many rules but like ultimately you know if you have 14 lines you're pretty much sonneting um, yes. <laughs> right. and so it's sort of you can sort of take and leave things and i think that's really fascinating this poem feels you're right it's like an exploded sonnet it's like it <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it has some of those same turns sort of and especially with the, the use of the white space so i can see this poem in front yes. of me and it and it has stanzas that are not up against that left justified margin
1: that are departed off to the right and that for me creates sort of shifts and turns sound is one of the things that most pulls me through almost any poem really but sp- certainly uh, when i'm uh, writing when i'm composing so I think in some cases choices are made primarily for sound. And, you know, that that's a risky move because strangely, I feel like often when sound is foregrounded, it takes something away from sense. Hmm. <laughs> you know, so or there's maybe sort of like a there's kind of like a scale that's constantly being rebalanced between those two yeah. things, you know, sound and sense. And sometimes they're they're really balanced and it's a really nice equilibrium but you can tip it one way or the other. And of course that creates emotion within the, within the piece. And, and that often translates into a feeling, whether it's a, a feeling you can name precisely or not, you're still having that experience in the poem. I yeah, find that very, very interesting.
0: A lot of your work for me anyway, creates your right sort of more abstract experiences that create emotion. Which is a different way for the poem to operate. So I, I am not surprised at all to hear that that sound is part of what's driving your choices, because because I think that in part cre- makes things increasingly abstract. Yeah. But your brain kind of likes that, and the brain <laughs> likes to be surprised and delighted. And I think that's the other effect is is when you sort of forefront sound the surprising directions that that can take you in the ways that words could end up in combination that would not normally be
1: hmm yeah
0: um we've both taught like a ton of poetry right so you talk a lot to folks about like h- how you create an emotional experience in the poem and a lot of that can be direct sensory imagery you know we're like five senses kind of stuff right mm-hmm. um but you can get there through abstraction and also like the sensory experience of the poem itself like its own sound does that make sense
1: yeah, oh yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah it's sort of like a, a window that you can look through and see something on the other side, but also if you pay attention to the pane of glass, there's plenty to fascinate you as well.
0: Mm -hmm. You don't
1: have to look through the window if you don't want to.
0: Right. Yeah. So so speaking of poems that have features that are interesting, both visually and I'm curious how you're going to read this. I would love to hear alcove. We read alcove
1: too. Sure. Of course. This is called alcove. The saints marvel that I have made myself a body. All I did was shout, where is my shame? And remind myself how oblivious they are. Where is my body on its feet, accumulating on the canning line, laying marigolds and sandbags on the median? My grandmother's rosary and what I remember of my childhood It's obviously plastic beads, are made from a uranium so pure that, of course, it outshone the dark. Annual rings forgive the extravagance of a poor man's nap, allow him to ribbon, but his rebound can't show up overshadowing. It has to stay telescoped. I am never more than freight. One of the most conspicuous phases of getting lost. The alpha nuzzles the doe-eyed beast it would be woe to hunt. Omega hurls its maple boomerang. Virgin Mary, Mother of God, have mercy on me. For I have tempted your son with a cruise and a genie's vow. Pumped sanitizer that reeks of communion wine. Where is my tempo? Where is my apparition? Where is my touchless summoning? My grandmother digs the hole. I plant the sticks stained with the red and purple of imitation juice. By next summer, she says, a popsicle tree will flower. The neighbor finally agrees to chop down his bamboo unbridled a rare shower spares the jade spears everywhere they are in force
0: So this poem visually has asterisks that separate the fragments and again this this poem does does not super care about that left margin <laughs> Um and is really making use of the white space is, is sort of sprawled all across this page. So tell me about tell me about making this poem. As as part of a daily practice, I think this one is particularly interesting. So how did this
1: happen? So there's punctuation in this poem, but I find myself moving further and further away from punctuation mm-hmm. in poetry. W. S. Merwin very famously kind of broke up with punctuation at one point in his career. Um, <laughs> uh, You know, he just started writing unpunctuated poems. And you know, what's amazing about those poems is you don't miss the punctuation, Mm -hmm. right? And I think he very famously said, he felt like punctuation was pinning the words down to the page, Mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting notion. Like there's some sort of cruelty that that punctuation is is um, exacting upon the language. <laughs> but I tried to empty this poem of as much punctuation as possible, and so for me, the the white space often serves the same function as punctuation. Mm-hmm. So what I do remember about writing this one is that it was probably punctuated originally. I mean, you know, this is in the the space of working on it within the course of a day. It was punctuated. And then I went back through and and said, "Okay, well, I've shown myself where the the breathing needs to happen. I can remove that now and and open it up a little bit because I didn't want it to feel prosy, even though often the the language is is following a a pro, prosaic rhythm or, or a kind of prose prosody mm-hmm. <laughs> not to uh, not to be uh, a tautological there. I've just finished a a full length manuscript where The the poems in that collection are heavily punctuated um, Mm. by design. Okay. And so I think it's also me kind of recovering from that experience. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I just thought about the white space in terms of rhythm and, you know, there's eye rhythm and there's uh, ear rhythm and there's breath rhythm and those things don't always align or they're not always uh, in sync. To me, that's one reason why it 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 moves across the page the way it does. Yeah, it's, it's kind of outrunning punctuation, maybe.
0: Yeah, well, I think especially in poetry, the the white space is that opportunity to like ask yourself what you can do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think it does create the pacing here. And it this poem is interesting because it's like all of these sort of seemingly sort of on the surface broken fragments the, the individual little little fragments do have like a you're right a bit of a prose quality to them but but they're the fact of their fragmentation and being presented next to each other is definitely a very poetic strategy
1: yeah i i'm pretty sure the order of this one changed quite a bit before i said uh, it's time to walk away
0: okay i can see that
1: <laughs> yeah You've put together a collection of poetry. Mm-hmm. You know both the pleasures and challenges of sequencing a yeah. collection. To me, that's really exciting work. This poem was exciting in one sense because it was a, a sort of mini version of that. You know, like okay, treat each each little fragment as a poem unto itself. Oh, there's so many opportunities to sequence these in interesting ways, hmm. and to think about you know sometimes material that maybe feels unrelated is filling a gap between two sections that are closely related. Mm -hmm. Um, So thinking about leaps uh, as well. And yeah, just again, the experience you have while you're within the poem. Yeah. What is that experience and how does that generate meaning or how is that productive of meaning? The
0: section that really stood out to me is pump sanitizer that reeks of communion wine. Where is my tempo? Where is my apparition? Where is my touchless summoning? Those particular images and words just hit so specifically, given our current situation. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I yeah, I have I w- noticed that sanitizer smells like booze. It really does. In during the pandemic, in a way
1: <laughs> that it yes. did not before. Yes. Um, well, a, a lot of distilleries switched over their operations to making sanitizer. Yeah. The church that my wife goes to, they had someone come out. Probably last summer, probably it was in June or July, and they left b- branded bottles of hand sanitizer mm-hmm. on the front porch, right? Kind of like to just remind you, hey, we you know, you're still our community. We we know you're here. And I opened one up and it smelled to me of communion wine, which made a lot of sense mm-hmm. um, because communion is very important to the church that she belongs to. It's not a Catholic church but they, they believe a lot in communion communion is, is central to their service. I was raised Catholic, so I'm very well acquainted with the smell of communion wine. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, you know, smells are, are incredibly evocative of memory. And so it's, that was a thread that, that pulled a lot of other things into the poem. Yeah. Um, Like the grandmother's rosary and, and from there, the popsicle tree and a lot of other things, but yeah, in some ways, it's interesting that you that you alighted on that stanza because that's the sensory detail that kind of occasioned everything. Wow. Okay, that makes sense. So even when it looks super abstract, there's still some sensory grounding.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I love the phrase "touchless summoning." That the word "touchless" has come to mean so many things that it didn't before
1: something you better tell your customers you provide if you're a business for example and so wow like a world without touch is a quote-unquote better world Hmm. right like yeah it's it's definitely an invitation to to think about wow our language itself has undergone tremendous pressure in this experience of the pandemic or this Mm -hmm. pandemic experience what kind of what's happening to language you know right now
0: yeah fascinating are you getting tired yet of writing poems
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it really it really depends on the day some days it is a there is definitely an oh crap feeling
0: mm-hmm.
1: of wow but for the most part i really look forward to it like i i now almost five months in i can't imagine starting my day any other way in any other fashion Okay. If I don't do it, I'm going to feel kind of icky. Huh. Um in the same way that when you start exercising and you really get into um, exercising, when you don't exercise, you feel it more yeah. than when you do. It's kind of like that.
0: That's fascinating. Okay.
1: I mean, it's definitely it's definitely a kind of like putting in your reps type yeah. of project.
0: Well, and that's like obviously that's the other that's the other thing that's happening in this process, right? Like you're making all of these poems, but you're also you are having the emotional experience of having to do this. Yeah. <laughs> you talking about like, oh, I know it's gonna like create these changes in my work, but but I can imagine that it would also have sort of emotional ebbs and flows for you. Um,
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I was was talking to someone yesterday, and and they brought up the kind of growing conversation in the arts communities about what I guess is best termed the content treadmill, and how when you move your artistic practice to social media, whether you're sharing work on social media, or you're, for lack of a better term, promoting the work that you do on social media, Mm -hmm. how... Labor intensive that is, and how there's never any sort of satisfying the hunger for content, right? And is that a healthy thing for artists? Mm-hmm. You know, what does what downtime and recharging of batteries look like for artists? Mm-hmm. Um, so, after having that conversation, I'm thinking about that in connection with this project as well, even though that was not something I came into the project thinking about. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's maybe also an experiment in okay the advice is right every day is that really good advice yeah <laughs> what kind of capitalist assumptions are behind that you know right and i'm willing to it's safer to do that experiment on myself than another person so i'm willing i'm willing to do it
0: yeah you're right that there's just so much advice in in writer world that is just accepted yeah and God, we're all just so different. And, and you're right that so many of our assumptions come from
1: structures that don't serve us.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, well, I would love to hear uh, Indecision Song. when you read it to me?
1: Sh- sure. Indecision Song. Tonight, I stilled myself in sheared air. I let contemplation escape me. Its trance candled the outline I'd already burned into the inertia cobbled before me. A hard freeze owes me a poetry beyond perception. Instead, it presents me a six o'clock glazed with alchemy. Silhouette nested in a shadow, imminence umbilical to incipience, Warming instinct turned my stimming apparatuses inside out. From stomach and brow a holly grew. Very clad, appointed itself muse of deranged flight.
0: Hmm. How did this one happen?
1: This was in February, so this was around the time of the particularly deadly weather we had here. Mm-hmm. I think probably the occasion was was standing in the front yard around dusk, one of those days, and looking at my shadow, cast on the, the snow that had melted and refrozen. Mm -hmm. So it's really rooted in that perception and and thinking, as the poem says, trying to think beyond that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) So where is the light coming from in that situation, the the use of the shadow? In the days right before the temperatures dropped precipitously, the robins and cedar waxwings had gone crazy in our yard because we do have a holly tree and holly bushes, the berries on those plants were in profusion. And so the the birds were just gobbling them up like crazy. And they have to be careful because I believe it's true that the, I can't remember if the, yeah, I I think once the berries get into their stomachs, they ferment Mm -hmm. and basically make them drunk.
0: Yeah, they do. Yeah. I've definitely seen drunk birds. Yeah.
1: Yes. This image of a tree just full of birds, which was something I could see out the front window. Like I said, in the days before, it turned cold. Almost as if the birds knew, hey, the weather's about to change. The weather's about to turn. We're probably not going to be able to forage much at all next week. Fill up now. Right. <laughs> I don't know that that's maybe what happened. But, yeah. but or, anyhow.
0: You know, bird party either. <laughs> yes.
1: I'm also, I, I joke a lot about birds and poems because birds are in a lot of poems. Mm-hmm. Fond of saying, I wish more poets would study geology rather than ornithology. Like, I want more rocks in poems. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go against the grain. I'm going to go against kind of what I would normally do. I'm going to stick birds in a poem and try to do something with that. So this is partly what resulted.
0: And we've known each other a long time, and I've read a lot of your work, and I don't necessarily think of your work as occasional, but I guess this whole project would be. Yeah. (laughs) You would have associations with with what was happening with like every piece, even if you're not, even if you're not directly mentioning it in the poem, like you are in this one.
1: Yeah. It it can't help, but be kind of diaristic because it is a daily practice. And some days I'm more willing to lean into that than others, Mm -hmm. you know, like January 6th, January 7th. There was no way not for that to make its way into the poem. Like there's just no way there was no way not to let the events of mid February, find their way in Mm -hmm. there was no way to not let the events of last week find their way in yeah and also i would say the early morning before i go do other work is when i'm also catching up on the news Mm -hmm. and so it's also been interesting to see the things in the news on a day-to-day basis that are not necessarily newsy you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like Yeah, there was a study released last week, but we're just now writing about it this week kind of thing, like a scientific study that tells us something about gastroliths in dinosaurs, for example. If dinosaurs are related to birds, to bring it back to birds for a second, (laughs) if dinosaurs are related to birds, did dinosaurs have gizzards the way that birds do? Right. There may be scientific evidence that they did. Right. (laughs) And that's a whole rabbit hole pull another animal into this discussion yeah uh, to fall down
0: and and you're right that poetry works that way that like whatever you're inputting is gonna output somehow so if you're in the moment of like you know national disasters and tragedies and gizzards um yeah (laughs) and your poems are gonna reflect that
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah if nothing else the the experience of having lived through lived through it or the experience of living through it is is going to be present in some way shape or form
0: yeah
1: some people have said oh i'm really interested to see what you're doing i've said well okay what i'm going to do is i'm going to make a very small number of physical copies at the end of every month and i'm going to pick a charity and i'm going to raise money for them and if you donate five bucks to the charity i'll send you a copy of the the chat book i've made Mm -hmm. that is one thing i've been doing so 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 some people have seen the the series i guess for lack of a better term as it's as it's emerged interesting um, okay yeah so this month in april raising money for a bat conservatory hey yeah not not a place where they train bats to play music sure i should make that very clear all <laughs> Bat conservation effort now i'm disappointed <laughs> wouldn't that be kind of amazing
0: <laughs> that's that's interesting to think about like all of this work being presented differently, so it coming out in like monthly sort of way, organized. I'm assuming chronologically.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and then, and then to maybe eventually have some different iteration or several different iterations. Like that's it's that that project in and of itself to take this sort of like massive amount of language, and sort of turn it different ways.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird exercise in waiting, though. It's very instant in one sense. And I think it kind of challenges some of the ideas we have about how long should it take to produce something of value. Mm-hmm. And I put value in scare quotes, because mm-hmm. I'm just looking at it from my personal sp- perspective, it has value to me, because I did it. And I I, I have another day to do it. And in, in that sense, like every day, there's something new, you know, yeah. and then at another sense, it's, there's no decision I can make about what it is that's been done until I'm through with the experience.
0: Yeah. It is so very like on brand for you to be, uh, you know, putting together zines and donating to different charities, getting people involved. That is, that is very Joe Milazzo, um, <laughs> which which brings me to asking you about a uh, surveyor because that is another fantastic opportunity that you are creating. We talked in my last episode, I talked to Robin Myrick about her book, I Am the State of Emergency, which is the first title. It's coming out mm-hmm. from the new imprint surveyor. So talk to me a little bit about surveyor and how that came to be.
1: In a lot of ways, it, the, the press exists because of Robin's book. I've known about that project for a long time. When I was editing a journal called Out of Nothing, we had published some excerpts from it, mm-hmm. um, which kind of led to the entropy project that she talked about you know, we talked about the importance of that book coming out before the 2020 presidential election. And, uh, you know, she and I kind of worked through some other options and, and, and looked at other presses. And at the end of the day, so many small and independent presses have to move very slowly because the resources available to them are incredibly limited. So it seemed like the best way to get the book out there was to kind of create the infrastructure ourselves or myself. So I thought, well, the great thing about this is that there's also another mission that needs to be fulfilled, which is to make sure that debut authors can make their way into print. Mm -hmm. Uh, Getting that first book is incredibly difficult. In some ways, the model of surveyor is is kind of the independent record label model. What I would most like to see happen is for A larger press to come along and say, "We love Robin's book so much, we want to acquire it from you." To which I would say, "Please go for it. Here's Robin to talk to. You guys get this book out in front of the the largest possible audience." Okay. So I think it's important for readers to know how the industry works, which is probably something that Surveyor um, is going to start doing a little bit more of in the future. Is talk a little bit more and make more transparent how book publishing works and distribution and how bookstores acquire books and why certain books show up in bookstores and some books do not and things of that nature, because there's a lot of mediation involved and the more you know about it, the more you can make different choices as a consumer.
0: Yeah. I love this idea about transparency because you're right. It is, it is such a complicated process. And I think, you know, especially to consumers, yeah, the what you just see is books on shelves, mm-hmm. and I think it could really give a shift in perspective for people to know more about like what happens, what actually happens. Right. So, what's next for you?
1: Oh uh, well, I got a poem to write tomorrow. You do. <laughs> I do have a poem to write tomorrow. um For the last two years, I've been invited by D Magazine t- to contribute to their summer microfiction uh, issue. Okay. And I was asked again to write this year something, and I just submitted that this week, this past week, and I'm glad to have it done, and I'm excited. And then uh, Surveyor Books, I'm excited to get these two books finished. This first title is another book of poetry. It's a a book-length poem. The other book is a collection of linked short stories. Okay. So... Yeah, excited about yeah, excited about getting those firmed up, finished up, out there to readers.
0: Great, yes, I am. I am thrilled about the new stuff coming out from Surveyor. Thank you. I, I can't wait to see your new project. I am. I'm so so excited that you could do this with me today. Thank, well, thank you. Thank you.
1: I'm I'm incredibly happy to be here and to talk to you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much to the Wild Detectives. This has been Inner Moonlight. I am your host, Logan Cure. I can't wait to see you again next month.